open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Nitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a powerful guest today, Rick Falkveen. He's the founder of the Pirate Party. It's active in over 70 countries. It's polling about 40% in Iceland right now. Uh, they have seats in the EU Parliament, uh, Iceland, Germany. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thank you, Trace. Much appreciate being here. So when we talk about this Pirate Party, are like what, what's it what's it about like what what's your guys's purpose right if if you want it in one sentence it's about analog equivalent rights and what i mean by that is that if you look at the letter in the analog world when you were sending an analog letter putting it on the mailbox physically carrying it to the mailbox and it would be physically carried to the recipient that letter had certain characteristics yeah it was anonymous you you and you alone had the prerogative of whether to identify yourself as sender on the inside of the letter for only the recipient now on the outside of the envelope for the postal service, no, or not at all, frankly. Sending anonymous mail was a considered a pillar of the free press for uh, blowing the whistle on corruption. That that letter was secret in transit. Nobody would open it just to see if you committed a crime just randomly. You had to be under prior and individual suspicion of a serious crime to have your mail opened. It was untracked. Nobody had the nobody had the right nor indeed the means or capabilities to see who was communicating with whom and last but not least the mailman was never ever responsible for the message now all of these four characteristics are not carrying over to the environment our children are communicating in and that's why i'm talking about analog equivalent rights we're fighting for something as basic as our fundamental civil liberties to carry over from our parents to our children. And there's a lot of industries that don't want to see that happen. Oh, you mean like uh, music and video, for example? Yeah, you got the copyright industry to begin with. But I mean, politicians don't really care about the copyright industry. They don't understand it. They don't care about it. They are defined by the structures of the last century, which is about energy, healthcare, defense, education, you name it. So this thing about freedom of information, freedom of knowledge, freedom of culture, they are like, what's that? To, to tell you the truth, I've seen the inside of the European Parliament. These people who actually vote for our legislation are getting their emails printed for them by their secretaries. Oh, my goodness. And they think that makes them understand what the Internet is. And that makes them really dangerous because the only thing worse than a, people, than a person not knowing anything about a subject is a person thinking they know enough about a subject but getting it all wrong. So, well, well, who are we? Well, we're about civil liberties. At our core, we're about civil liberties, freedom of thought, freedom of information, something as basic as being able to share interesting things with one another. And yeah, the, the, the um, copyright industry is kind of the canary in the coal mine here. They're the first skirmish. They're the first, they're the t tutorial level, if you like, because politicians don't give a shit about it. But when you're moving into Bitcoin, when you're moving into freedom of information, when you're circumventing mainstream media, do you think politicians care about the 
ability to, to control financial flows and issue money. Fuck yes, they do. So that's when you're starting to see the real effects. So when you're talking about financial flows, uh, you know, we, I think independently, we were the first two to publicly come out with uh, Bitcoin prices potentially in the right. millions yep. of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And, no, and <laughs> that's kind of funny. I mean, when I posted about that, when I posted about why I went all into Bitcoin, actually not just all in, I took all my savings and my entire credit line and put it in Bitcoin. It sounds early like 20, a recipe for disaster. 2011. Well, I went in at three. It hasn't been that much of a disaster, to be honest. But, but I mean, <laughs> you're able to fly around the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the point, right? I mean, if you're looking, this was discussed. This post was discussed on Reddit, and the top voted comment uh, for this particular post was, "I cannot begin to comprehend the depths of the stupidity." this brain is capable of. And I kind of saved that for later. So, so yeah, I mean, we're looking at a val valuation if Bitcoin realizes its, its potential well beyond the seven digits per individual coin. I, um, and we, we arrived at that individually, slightly from different viewpoints, but still, yeah. So, I mean, why, why could that happen, though? I mean, most people who at this time when I posted this, I mean, the Bitcoin was in its two low two digits. Some people were fantasizing about $50. Some people were going outrageous about $100. And they, they were just not looking at the numbers. They were sort of seeing something and not doing a proper economic analysis. I mean, you have, a, you have an instrument of value. Yeah? You have an instrument of exchange. There is a market for instruments of exchange. It's called currency. So how much of the exchange market, meaning the exchange of value market, could Bitcoin potentially capture? And we're looking at numbers between 10 and uh, between 1 and 10 percent, depending on where, depending on how much it realizes its potential. And then you look at, well, OK, so looking at the velocity, meaning turnover of money, what kind of market, cap what kind of value capitalization does Bitcoin need? in order to fulfill this market need of turning over this much money. And you're arriving of you're whether you like it or not, you're arriving at a per coin value of about between five, two, to, two to five million dollars. Yeah, I think my number came in at two point eight. And it, yeah, it was very good. interesting. Like, you know, our you're over in Europe, I'm here in the US for the most part. You know, we don't rub shoulders even online that much. And yet within the same week, I think right. articles came out independently within the same week. And my interview had been recorded, you know, a couple of weeks earlier and they had finally gotten around to editing and mm -hmm. then finally publishing it. So I thought it was a very interesting that we both it, kind it, of it honed is, in at the same time on the same figures. You had a slightly different approach, though, to arrive at the same number. Yeah, yeah, that's true. When we're talking about, you know, these financial flows, when we're talking about our analog rights, what do you think is the importance of anonymous digital cash? You know, gold coins don't have identities attached with them. Gold coins don't have identities. And uh, to be honest, that's been discussed as a bit of a, a drawback that's surfacing with Bitcoin right now. It's fungibility, as in a Bitcoin that ha that was used in some sort of criminal activity. Does it have the same market value as a freshly mined coin? And there's an argument to be made. Until after it's been sold by the U.S. Marshals Service. There you go. There you go. As in, I mean, there are even services selling freshly mined coins at a premium, which sort of is an argument for a Bitcoin not being equal to a Bitcoin. But Jews have a saying that I'm, I mean, Jews have been persecuted for 
literally millennia, yeah? Yeah. And they have a very wise saying, and that is that what 10% of your fortune should be in a form that you can grab when you run out of the house in the morning. If you need to flee, 10% should be in a form that you just can grab. And I think that's a lot of where Bitcoin's value lies. It's unseizable. It's instantly movable. What you carry with you are the keys to the fortune and not the fortune itself, which is an entirely new concept. Yeah, it's very abstract. It is, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking at these customs forms. Are you bringing the value of more than $10,000 into the country? Well, yes, technically. And then again, no. Last I checked, maybe I'm worth more than $10,000. Well, there you go. Who knows what to like put on these forms? I mean, U.S. government thinks it owns its citizens, right? Yeah, yeah I'm not going to the U.S. anymore. They've, I'm too good friends with too many reporters who have been critical of the regime, and that's unfortunately as how far the U.S. have gone at this point. Yeah, they do seem to like to uh, persecute their journalists, uh, anybody with a conscience, right? So when we're when we're looking at data, information, the information age. What is really, like, what's happening right now? What needs to happen and what is happening? Let me pull an analogy. Uh, that's important in, in that area. Let me pull an analogy from way way back when, because I'm not sure if you follow Battlestar Galactica, but one of, their, one of the favorite slogans was that all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So even though technology changes, people don't change, and the power play doesn't change. So we've seen all of this play out before. And what's good about that is that it gives us a blueprint on how to achieve victory. And when this happened was in the 14th and 15th centuries. And the way it happened was that the Catholic Church was producing all the books. And they were producing all the books in Latin. So the Bible was in Latin, yeah? And only the clergy could read Latin at the time. That meant that every single preacher in every single village could read from the Bible, which was sort of the manual to life, and not be questioned. That meant that the clergy had what we call the power of narrative. They could establish what the narrative was. They were the ultimate arbiters of truth or falsehood. Now, what happened with the printing press in 1453, Martin Luther, later that century, and in particular with the Gutenberg Bibles, early 1500s, was that all of a sudden cartloads of Bibles in French and German started appearing in France and Germany. So all of a sudden, People could verify what was being claimed. The And here's the key. The church's gatekeeper position over knowledge and culture had been broken. The gatekeeper position had been broken. And that instantly led to 200 years of civil war across the known world, what we call the religious wars today. On the surface, they were about Protestantism versus Catholicism. If you dig it a little deeper, they were about Martin Luther protesting this, the Catholic Church selling salvation. If you go even deeper, though, it was about the Catholic Church being able to claim it could sell salvation because it had the gatekeeper position over knowledge and culture. It held an absolute power of narrative. And this is where we are today. This is what the net breaks. You have, you have had these structures, a collusion of government and mass media having held the power of narrative. And all of a sudden, the masses are taking it from governments and mass media without asking permission, just by power of using the Internet. So this is how big a power shift that's happening right now is. 
all while these governments and mass media are treating the Internet as though it's some toy you could take away from kids when they've been misbehaving. So we've got the, the keys of the press. Uh, you know, it's no longer NBC and ABC, and that's it. What other gatekeepers are falling? Basically, all of them related to knowledge and culture. You have the copyright industry. A colleague of mine phrased it very well that when you're looking at file sharing and when you're looking at persecution of unauthorized copying, the copyright industry is not afraid of you putting their music on YouTube. What they fear is you putting your music on YouTube. And coincidentally, the exact same thing happened again in these religious wars I talked about. People, or no, not people, the power holders were fearing the spread of dangerous ideas, as they call them, and gradually cracked down on the technology used to disseminate these ideas. Not the people spreading the ideas, not the ideas themselves, but the technology. Up until it reached the death penalty for using a printing press at all in France on January 13, 1535. And notabene, not even the death penalty for unauthorized copying could stop the future. So we've got we've got the keys of the press uh, that are getting decentralized. Yep. Got, the keys of money are getting yep. decentralized. Yep. I mean, the you got, keys of you got you got knowledge as in Wikipedia and all of that. You got culture as in music, movies, games. It's interesting to note that the games industry has led has lived with copying and unauthorized copying for its entire existence and and it's certainly not in in any kind and of it's still around yeah and now we're arriving at money and politicians haven't cared as long as it was just video games because all good culture is about football anyway except for the new generation it isn't but we're arriving at a point where their that their ability to tax the public to fund the government is getting challenged and they're not going to see it coming until it's too late. And that's when you get the conflict. Yeah, the earthquake already happened. Uh, the ocean is receding. They the, exactly, have no exactly, idea exactly. this tsunami is Exactly. They're just shore. seeing there and see. Oh, oh, look, the water's receding. That's, that's nice. Good. Yeah, have, have fun with that. You know, how about the U.S. political system? Uh, what do you think of what's going on here? And why oh, well. hasn't the Pirate Party gotten a little bit more traction in the United States? You know, a, a lot of folks in the U.S., when, when we're looking at, I mean, we had a landslide sensation getting 7% in, in 2009. And when we're t when you're talking to a U.S. audience, 7% sounds like a fucking loser, yeah? Mm -hmm. But And winners aren't losers. Right. So the deal with 7% in Europe, most countries in Europe anyway, is that you get 7% of the seats. As in, you take, it's called a proportional system. If you get X percent of the seats where exit is above a small number, usually four or five, then you get X percent of the seats in parliament. And what that brings you is that in most countries in Europe, there are two blocks of parties, not parties, but blocks of parties closely tied for power, usually 49 to 51 mm -hmm. or some 48 to 52 or something like that. Just like in the U.S., except it's blocks of parties instead of instead of individual parties. That means that if you can get five percent of the votes, and you totally can on an idea like this, we I mean we we, we did that, so we know it's possible. You can hold a wedge in between in between these two blocks. Yeah, that means you get to sit down and play who wants to be a prime minister. 
And seeing how these old parties are essentially defined by the problems of the last century and their old and their own solutions to the problems of the old century, which we don't care about anymore. Which I mean, healthcare, education, defense, energy, and so on. These problems are generally solved. Yeah, you can tweak the system a little bit here and there, but the problems are generally solved as opposed to what is money, what is knowledge, what is culture. These are open fields. And what that brings you is that when you get to sit down and play who wants to be a prime minister, they're going to think that freedom of education, freedom of knowledge, freedom of culture is, a, is an extremely cheap price to pay for getting the office of the prime ministry. And they wouldn't understand that they're in this negotiation, they're defining the next century and centuries. So how is that playing out in Iceland, for example? Oh, it's, Can it's, you give us a specific example of like, yeah, I mean, and, how's it working? I mean, it's going beyond, beyond expected in Iceland. We were, our strategy was to take this wedge, yeah. And uh, when we got into the European Parliament, we had only a few members of the European Parliament. But the benefit there of having people on the inside is that in the European Parliament, people listen to experts. And, and unfortunately, usually these experts are lobbyists for the incumbent industries trying to prevent being replaced by innovation. And that's a bad story. But once you have experts who are elected, once you have member, actual members of European Parliament, then they have a much higher ranking, much higher internal credibility than a paid lobbyist who everybody knows is there to forward a specific interest, which meant that all of a sudden we had access to the rooms that lobbyists didn't. And that is why you saw the European Parliament defeat ACTA. That is why you saw the Pirate Party make three strikes illegal across Europe. That is why you saw a totally radical copyright monopoly reform proposal about making file sharing completely legal, no matter what the content was, going from a fringe insane proposal to now being mainstream in the European Parliament, being pushed by one of the major party groups. So that was our success with the European Parliaments. Now, Getting this wedge in national parliaments is a, is a strategy we haven't executed yet because we haven't gotten to that position. But it's important to remember that most new parties take on average, no, new parties take on average 28 years to get their first person elected. And we did it in three and a half. So we are, we're you're, working on internet time here. You're iterating much faster. Exactly. Much, much faster. We're working something, using something called swarm methodology. And if you want to read more about that, there's a whole book about it called Swarm Wise. And you can download the entire PDF for free if you just Google it. Now, how's that going? And with Iceland in particular, Iceland's turning out to be a, a bit of an outlier because last election in Iceland in 2013, they got three seats in parliament. They didn't get the wedge, uh, the Icelandic parliament oldest in the world, by the way. It's, uh, it was founded in 963, I believe. Not 1963, but 963. Wow. The Althing. That was during their uh, their golden age where they actually were very anarchic. Yeah, even, yeah the court, even the court systems didn't have jurisdiction over particular ground. They had to compete in like a federation. Yeah, it so. was literally a Viking, the Viking, during the Viking yeah. age. Yeah. Who ran away because they didn't like the feudal lord system that was happening there. So they yeah. kind of fled just like the uh, founding fathers fled to the U.S. And just exactly, like exactly. Uh, the other people fled to Amsterdam. Exactly. So this parliament does have a bit of a legacy to it. But they got three seats, but not in a wedge position, unfortunately. So they were using this representation to 
call a spade a spade. And Iceland, I mean, they jailed all the bankers. They had their financial collapse. And they just, the general population just weren't used to people in parliament calling a spade a spade and calling out corruption for what it was. So during the three years of representation, they've grown, parliament has essentially shit itself over their straightforwardness and and the populace has come to love them. So they're now polling at 42%. Again, that doesn't mean much for a U.S. audience. That sounds like below 50. But if you're in a proportional system, that means you're the largest party. That means you're essentially required for a majority coalition post-election. And they uh, currently, they only need a 9% partner to form a 51% majority. And if they're the 42% and the other is the 9%, then the 42% is going to get most of, it, most of its policy. So now you shouldn't pop open the champagne before the results are in, obviously. But my colleagues on Iceland have talked about wanting to create a, a safe data haven on Iceland as the first sovereign nation, creating a, a, nation, a safe data haven the way Switzerland is, or perhaps was, a safe money haven or a safe banking haven. And the interesting thing about that is that it only takes one country to disagree with the monopolies and the privileges of the old structures to just tip over the first domino and, and make and get them falling. The internet doesn't know borders. So, I mean, if you imagine a an exchange on Iceland, uh, a Bitcoin exchange on Iceland, a service like Pandora on Iceland, all the knowledge services on Iceland. Wikipedia, service, Wikipedia servers. Exactly, or... Wikipedia servers. I mean, if you just toy... BitTorrent seeds. Exactly. I don't know exactly what they're going to push for. I don't know what they're going to get through. But if you're just toying with the idea that you're returning the copyright monopoly to where it was just 20 years ago, something that only concerns lawyers for commercial big publishing houses and keeps it out of honest people's bedrooms. And that's not such a far-fetched idea because we were there 20 years ago. And that, that would mean, for example clearing non-commercial, all kinds of non-commercial file sharing, not-for-profit file sharing. And I mean, it only takes one country to legalize that. It only takes one out of 192. And Pandora's box is open permanently. And Iceland particularly is well-situated for it, halfway between the U.S. and Europe, major internet traffic backbones, low latency, uh, lots of cheap geothermal energy, uh, cooling, uh, all of these yeah, types good of things. Cooling, good energy, I mean, it could, it. It could help it. with the local economy and create lots totally, of jobs, totally. too, right? I mean, they could become the knowledge nation overnight if they disagreed that the incumbents should have this privilege, which, frankly, I don't see why they should have. But how likely do you think it's going to be that uh, Iceland will become this bastion of freedom of speech? If the Pirate Party gets into the position it looks like it's going to get into... And barring something major like World War III breaking out or, worst case, continuing to break out, then then I think we're in a very good position. I mean, it's a black swan that people don't see coming. It could be extremely exciting. Couldn't it? Couldn't it? I mean, what, you, what you're seeing here is not just a shift of power holders within the structures. What you're seeing is a shift of the structures themselves. You're seeing... For the first time, the net generation take power. Yeah, the millennials are stepping onto the stage. Exactly. It's already starting to creak. Exactly. Although the millennials, in this case, happen to be older than the actual millennials, but still carry the net culture with them. What are we seeing 
we've got freedom of speech. What about freedom of transaction? Do you have anything you want to say about that? Well, it's the same thing there, you know, as in you have the SWIFT system based in Belgium, Europe. The U.S. demanded a copy of all transactions, all traffic from the hub in, I don't remember if it's Belgium or Netherlands, doesn't matter. And the European Parliament says no, said, no, you're not going to get this. We don't see a reason you should have a copy of our of a private company in a member state of Europe just because you but just because you're curious. And then it turned out that the NSA had hacked in and wiretapped all of it anyway. So, I mean, you're, the freedom of transaction is, we talked a little bit about that in terms of cash and so on. I mean, there's a lot of push toward going to a cashless society at this point. And there are a number of people pushing for this. Different interests that just happen to align. You have central bankers who are painting themselves into a corner with negative interest rate. And the only way to stop ordinary people hoarding cash is to force them to have all of their, their money in the banks and charge them for having money in the banks via negative interest rates. You have, you have the merchants who are pretending that they want everything on credit card to avoid robber, risk of robbery. And obviously, you have the credit card companies themselves who want a piece of the pie, who want want, want these between 2 and 4 maybe even 5% off the top of every transaction. I mean, that's a huge amount of money. So if you could dropkick this entire system, I mean, you'd be at risk of crashing the world economy, frankly, because the world economy, economy is so funneled into, well, it's painted itself into a corner. And the thing is, we've seen this happen so many times before in history, you know. Once you start taking on more debt to pay off the old debt, the story doesn't have a happy ending. It just doesn't. This has played out like what hundreds of times before, and it's got to play out hundreds of times again. And so we're we're going to see countries get a competitive advantage in terms of exactly. data and exactly. privacy laws exactly. to host this type of technology. Exactly. And Iceland is, is in a perfect position to do this because it's a country that had its financial collapse. It's just right now in a position where it's looking to reinvent itself. It, basically, it's a lot of its industry is fishing, some aluminum works, very traditional industries. Although it does have a strong technical talent. I mean, the, the online game EVE Online is based on Iceland, it's, and it's been dominating its genre for, what, over a decade. So Iceland is in a position to, to be not just the gate crasher, but the trailblazer of a world, literally a world economy. And not just that, you now have people set to get into power who understand that. So, you know, being a kind of a political animal, uh, actually taking seats, mm-hmm. uh, you know, politicians, it seems that they only understand one thing, and that's political pain. Uh, I hear you. You know, it's votes, it's headlines in the newspaper. I hear you. That's all they understand. I hear you. There's political pain, and then there's political death. What do you think of the U.S. system uh, as, as what's currently happening. I mean, Donald Trump just ripped off Jeb Bush's head and put it on a pipe. I know, right. After know. emasculating Mr. Low Energy. I know, right. Uh, talk about political pain. I know. Uh, Trump's so, just a wrecking ball of it. Godzilla. So, so, all right. I know, right. So we're, sometimes when I, when I'm presenting the Pirate Party, I'm presenting us as, yeah, we're activists. At this point, we're activists. But, it looks like we're going to get money and power. And once we have money and power, we're going to start attracting people who want money and power. 
And that way, it takes about one generation for every new political movement to have its original activists replaced by career politicians. That means 30 or 40 years out, this movement might may be as corrupt as the others, but that doesn't mean there isn't a place for us right in the here and now. And that's a different story. And you can see the same thing happening with Trump and, for that matter, Sanders, as in yeah, they're massive repudiations on the current status quo. I mean, it's, completely. I mean, Trump was the clown of the year and Sanders was a no-name no communist. And mass, uh, mass media were ridi- ridiculing them or just stonewalling them. And all of a sudden, the stale media or old media is realizing it's lost its narrative. All of a sudden, what looks like the front runners are not the one media told people should be the front runners. They don't control the narrative. Exactly. They don't control the narrative anymore. And I think this is a huge crisis of identity for them. Why don't people do as they're told? Because people have learned to communicate outside of their structures. Why believe them anymore? Right. Once you realize that they were basically lying all, all along and just talking, just pandering to their own interests... Once the trust is gone, once the trust is gone in the brand, I mean, it takes a long time to rebuild it if you, if you ever do. I mean, the, the core promise of democracy seems to be getting kind of revealed to everybody. You know, they, they're being told, well, you can look out the windshield, but don't you dare try and touch that steering wheel. Exactly, right? And democracy to me is that uh, as a community of some kind, you're throwing all the ideas onto a table and everybody gets to look at it and discuss it. And you don't have this person taking charge of the view at the top of the mountain anymore, saying, oh, look at that. Oh, look over there. And everybody has to look at at what this person is looking at. Yeah, But you can actually ignore these people taking charge of the view and, and start looking at everything on the table. That's how Sanders suddenly is a front runner. Because people started discussing outside of the gatekeeper's control, and they they just didn't see it coming. They literally didn't see it coming. Is it because the technology's gotten us there in terms of, I mean, these are really the first elections, maybe one or two elections in U.S. presidential politics where Facebook and YouTube have even been available. Right, right. Uh, I mean, the the technology can get us there, but it's going to take political will to keep it there. Right. right? Tell you what, tell you what. Sometimes people ask me, why did the Pirate Party start in Sweden, of all countries? And there is an interesting correlation here. Now, that's not causality, but it's just a very interesting correlation. And that is, in most of Europe, not to mention the United States, the Internet was rolled out by cable companies and old telcos. And you should know that both of these industries have a very strategic incentive to delay and stall rollout of the Internet's potential for as long as they possibly can, as compared to Japan and South Korea, where the households regularly have gigabit speeds today. Because the Internet is going to totally crush cable TV. The Internet is going to totally crush telco. Seriously, when I have a general purpose 100 megabit connection in the wall, why would I pay per minute for a 9.6 kilobit connection that can only be used for one supplier's voice application? It's beyond, I mean, they're 40 years behind, 40 years behind. So if you're trusting these industries to roll out the internet, 
you don't understand incentives. In Sweden, in, in contrast, the internet was rolled out by private entrepreneurs that did not have this legacy, did not have this luggage. So apartments were being fibered wholesale before the turn of the century. I had fiber to my apartment early 1999. Most people still don't have that. And the observation here, and I think the domino effects, is that when you give that kind of technology, not just to the geeks and nerds, but to everybody, then it kickstarts the public discussion on how this technology can and maybe even should be used. And I think that's why you saw the Pirate Bay founded in Sweden, because everybody had a 100 megabit line straight into their homes. Yeah, it's just... I didn't know that. That's absolutely fascinating that you that that entire country has been in a lot of ways a microcosm of what happens when you when you give explosive technology to everybody immediately. How it just changes culture. It eviscerates gatekeepers. Exactly. Now, it wasn't technically everybody, obviously, but it was a large enough amount of the population that people would start discussing it. When you're also dealing with a with a fairly small population that's pretty homogenous also. Right. I mean, there's less people in Sweden than there is in the city of London. In Iceland, even more so, there's like 300-something thousand people in the entire country, which gives you a lot more agility. So before we wrap up, uh-huh. you know, kind of as a last question, where do you see the future going? You know, what, what trajectory where are, the are we on? Where are, the like, where, where are we going? We're at a crossroads, and this is very important to understand. We're at a crossroads where we can go one out of two ways. Either the public gets control of the information and their information. They get to tell anybody anything they like for whatever reason. There is freedom of knowledge. People get to share interesting things. In that case, you'd have a government transparency that you'd, it's like you've never seen before because people will demand that kind of transparency. People will demand to see budgets and their execution in real time. There won't be any hiding things anymore. And moving forward, I think people will even start to question the concept of a classified document because if somebody's working for you, what right do they have to keep information about how they're doing their job away from you. You're paying their wage, after all. So we are still in the mindset of electing kings. And I think that can change to actually electing janitors of a country, which completely shifts the mindset. The other way this can take is that if the current incumbents and elites take control of the internet, then you're looking at a Brig Brothers society so dystopian A book written in the 1950s would have been thrown out as too unrealistic. I mean, if you just look at the GCHQ program Optic Nerve, where they hacked into webcam conversations and saw people in their living rooms in all all states of dress conversing with somebody, that puts us right into the 1950s dystopic novels where governments had a camera in every home with one key difference. We bought that camera ourselves. So we're at a crossroads right here, right now. Some people say that you should not be allowed to communicate illegal information or infringing called infringing music or movies or what have you. But the key thing to understand here is that 
you cannot sort the legal from the illegal without looking at it. The act of sorting requires observation. So we are at a crossroads where a decade out, we might not have private communication as a concept anymore. Or we might have that and the government is more transparent than ever. This is about the letter which we started this conversation with, coming full circle. Are we allowed to communicate anything to anybody anonymously like our parents were? If not, then we're heading for a big, big brother dystopia. If we are, then we're going for a more transparent society and a more democratic society than has ever existed in, in history. And that crossroads is right here and right now. How is Bitcoin relevant to that discussion? Bitcoin is what's going to wake the power holders up to what's happening. They don't care about music. They don't care about they don't care about mu- movies. That's just entertainment for the masses. That's the the new modern equivalent of gladi- gladiators. But once they realize their ability to tax the people to fund the government is in peril, that's when you're going to see the crackdown. And whether that crackdown succeeds or not, that's up to us, you, me, and everybody who's listening. With that, we've had a tremendously powerful interview with Rick Valfine, the founder of the Pirate Party, political pain extortioner extraordinaire. (laughs) It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Trace. It's been a pleasure. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.